Good morning. How are you all this morning? Terrible. Wow. This will be fun. Am I on, Nathan? Working? All good? Cool. We're great. We're great? Yeah. Thanks, Seth. <laughs> good to have you guys here. Um, so, we just finished up our study of David, looking at the life of David. Uh, the theme was uh, seeking the heart of God. Um, and so we, we saw that uh, David was a, a man after God's own heart. That's God's own description of him. And yet we saw the ups and downs, the trials of David's life, that he wasn't a perfect man. Um, but if you will remember back uh, to the second message, uh, this is a message I gave, we looked at David's early life and we looked at his calling as a king and we looked at this verse. It's Acts 13.22. It's God... Um, talking about David. So uh, in Acts, Luke says, He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, referring to God, this is what God said about David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And so if you remember back, we talked about what it meant to be a man after God's own heart. And we said it was someone who does the will of God. And so our whole past series, we're looking at David and looking at him as an example of how we should live, as we should be men and women who seek the heart of God, men and women who are described as uh, men and women after his own heart, and that in order for us to do that, we need to be men and women who do his will. So for the next four weeks, we're going to take a, a short little study and we're going to look at the will of God. Uh, because in order to do the will of God, we need to know what the will of God is, right? That kind of makes sense. You can't do something if you don't know what it is. So we're going to look at the will of God, because we want to know, um, you know, what's, what's God's will for us? What's God's will for us as individuals? Uh, what's God's will for us as families? Uh, what's God's will for us as a church in Dubuque? And so... Uh, in order to do His will, we need to know what it is. So we're going we're gonna to take some time and we're going to look at that. Look at God's will for us. So where do we start? Where do we start on this idea of the will of God? Well, I think we start at the beginning of the life of a Christian. Salvation. 1 Timothy 2, we'll start in verse 1 for context, says this. It says... <clears throat> That's not what it says, KT. It says this. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a, quiet, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul is talking to Tim Timothy, and he's, he's saying that he needs to do this. He, he, he urges him that supplications, prayers, intercessions... Thanksgiving should be made for all people, including kings, everyone in authority. So verse 3, he says, This is good, referring to that statement. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God, our, des our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we see that God, our Savior, His desire, His will, is that all people be saved, that everyone come to the knowledge of salvation. And then uh, 1 Timothy 2.5, this is, uh, is one of my favorite verses. I was at camp a couple weeks ago, and this is one of the first memory verses the kids learn. They have a section of like five verses they start with, and they have to say these five verses, and then they can go on to the next section. And this is the one, and it's at the top of the list, so inevitably this is the verse that most kids memorize first and come say. And I would say that probably nine times out of ten they say, there is one God and there is one meditator between God and man. It's, just, it's funny. It's pretty cute. And so I oftentimes take them and, you know, sometimes they get it right. One time, sometimes I say mediator or some other strange word that starts with an M. Um, but I oftentimes say, do you know what a mediator is? And most of the time they don't. And so I take that opportunity to explain it to them. What is a mediator? And so I'd usually say something like this. I'd say, perhaps, you know, you and I were having a conflict. And someone comes along, maybe my brother was standing next to me or helping, and I'd say, you know, Nathan comes along, and he comes, and he comes in the middle between the two of us. There's a conflict between us, and we're, we're upset with one another, we're arguing, um, and Nathan comes in the middle, and he talks to you, and he talks to me, and he helps us talk through it, and he helps us resolve the conflict. He's in the middle, he is our mediator. He's the one that has come between you and me and help us to resolve this conflict so that we are reconciled to one another. So this is what I would tell them. And so this is what the concept is here, that we have God who is holy and just in heaven and we have us who is sinful and rebellious on earth and we have an issue. We have a conflict because we have turned our backs on God. We have rebelled against Him. We have turned away from Him. And so in order for us to be reconciled to God, we needed someone to come in the middle to be our mediator, our go-between between this holy, righteous, sovereign God and this sinful, wretched man. And that's who Jesus was. 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 8, it says this. It says, Do not overlook, overlook this one fact. Behold, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So Peter is trying to put into perspective here for us that time is just kind of, God is outside of time. He does not live within time. He does not function within time. For a day to God is just like a thousand years. It, you know, it makes no difference. He doesn't function within the realm of time. So he says this, says verse 9, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Peter's saying, God is outside of time, and He's, he's not slow as some would count slowness. And if I said to you, KT, I'm going to come over this afternoon and drop off that book I borrowed, and it took me a thousand years to come over you would count that as slowness, right? Not in the time that I had specified. Exactly. Do I still have it? Because I was going to ask you if I could borrow it. Okay. Um, so, so God is outside of time. Time is irrelevant to God. He does not function within the realm of time. And so, for us, that's difficult to understand because everything in our life is controlled by time. 
we have the past, the present, and the future, and everything happens within that realm. It's either already happened, it's happening right now at this instant, or it will happen. But with God, that's not the case. And so, in the early days, especially in Christianity, a lot of the, the believers thought that God was going to come back in their lifetime. Many of them had been there when, when Christ was on earth and that He ascended and gone, and they thought that He was going to come back you know, in 20 or 30 years, that it was going to be within their lifetime. And now we're 2,000 years later, and you could hear many skeptics saying, you know, well, what's taking them so long? It's been 2,000 years. That's such a long time. But what Peter is saying is it's not. It's not a long time. It doesn't matter to God the time. It, does, it makes no difference. And, and God is not being slow in His promise to return. He's being patient, in fact. Why? Because He desires all people to be saved. All to come to repentance. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So the Lord is coming back, and He's coming back, we don't know when, any moment. And we need to be ready. So we see it's God's desire that all people be saved, that they come to the knowledge of the truth. That he is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I believe this is God's will for us. The first step in his will for our lives is that we come to salvation. And why is this so important? Why is it so important that we come to salvation? It's because, like we said, there's a problem. Fellowship between man and God has been broken. Back in the garden, there was Adam and Eve. All right, And so they were the first man and they were the first woman. And they, they were created by God and they were placed in the garden and it was just perfection and beauty. It was life, I believe, that God intended it to be on earth. And so Adam and Eve were in the garden and they had this beautiful garden. God said, there's all these trees. You can eat from any tree in the whole garden except one. He gave them one, one rule, just one. There's this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of its fruit. Everything else, free reign. Do whatever you want. One rule. And as a testament to the, to the heart of man, what happened? They sin, don't they? They break the one rule that God gave them. I mean, how hard was that? You have all of this to eat from. Just this one tree, don't eat from it. But Eve was deceived and she ate of the fruit and then Adam came along and he was deceived and he ate of the fruit and they sinned. They rebelled against God and fellowship from, with God was broken and at that moment, sin entered the world. And there was a problem. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We were all sinners. We've all turned on back on God. We have all chosen to do our will rather than God's will. That was mentioned this morning. KT read a great passage um, from Isaiah describing being in the presence of God and it's just almost frightening 
Because God is holy. He is infinite. He is separate from sinners. He is perfect. And so now there is enmity between this holy, perfect God and this sinful race that He created. 1 John 1, verse 5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Romans 5 says that we have become enemies with God. Romans 6.23 says this. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. That includes me, you, every man, woman, and child from the beginning of creation until the end of time. We're sinners. We sin. We rebel against God. We desire our own way. We have turned. We have rebelled against our Creator. There is none righteous, no, not one, it says. And so there's a problem. We have this holy, infinite God, and He's also completely just. God is just. And so when someone does something wrong, what happens? They have to face the consequences of that decision, don't they? In our culture... If someone kills someone, they're a murderer. They have to face the consequences for their sin, for their, for their murder. In some states, that means their life is taken as well. In some states, that means that they are imprisoned for the remainder of their life. But our God is completely just, and our sin cannot go unpunished because He is 100% just. He's holy separate from sinners. We have sinned and we deserve punishment. Romans 6.23 says it this way. It says, For the wages of sin is death. And I I just find this such an interesting way to phrase it. Um, When we were at camp last week, I just have to tell you this, or a couple weeks ago, because it's really funny. A A little boy like eight years old, came up and said this verse, Romans 6.23, and he said, the wedgies of sin is death. Which is also true, right? So, but here we see the wages of sin is death. Wages. What are wages? You know, that's not a word that we use a whole lot. Sam, you work for Horace Mann, correct? KT's a bit of a slave driver. Huh? Makes you work real hard. But you work, every day you go to work, um, you do what needs to be done, you contact clients, you do paperwork, whatever it is you do. And then at the end of the month or every two weeks, I'm not, you know, however you pay, you receive a paycheck, correct? That's correct. And so when KT prints off that check and gives it to you, he doesn't say, here, Sam, here's a gift from me. No, because you earned it, didn't you? You worked for it. You came in every day and you put in the time And you earned that money. It's your wages. So you worked, you received those wages for what you have done, what you have earned. You would laugh at KT if he said, here's a gift. Because (laughs) he's not just giving you something for nothing. You've earned it. And so here we see that we sin. And because we sin, we receive a paycheck, our wages. And unfortunately... It's death. 
And it's not unjust. It's fair. It's what we deserve. We have sinned and our wages gain us death. It's fair. It's just. We have earned death. We deserve it. And it's both physical death and spiritual death. We saw that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, when they sinned, up until that point, Adam and Eve weren't going to die. Death had not entered the world. But then they made the, the decision to rebel against God. And suddenly, they were going to die. So death entered the world. We all die. We all die physically. And for those of us that have not been saved, which we'll look at in just a second, we will die spiritually as well. We have sinned against an eternal God and we are eternal beings and for sins of eternal beings against an eternal God deserve an eternal punishment. But thank the Lord, Romans 6.23 does not end there. It says this. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God. Romans 5, 6-11 says this. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a, a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What an amazing thing. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As Isaiah 53 says, we were like sheep. We had gone astray. We had turned from our own way. We didn't seek God. We didn't turn to God and say, God, save us. We said, God, we don't want anything to do with you. God, I know that you said not to lie. But you know what? I'm more concerned about what people think of me. I'm more concerned about me, so I'm going to say what I want to. Lord, I know that you told me not to commit adultery, but you know what? I, I think this woman is beautiful. And I know that I said that I would be faithful to this woman for, for the rest of my life, but you know what, Lord? I want this. Lord, I know that you told me that I'm not to steal, but you know what? I want this thing that I see, and you know what? I don't want to pay for it. I'm going to take it. We have desired our own way, our own will, and we have turned against God, and we have sinned. And God said that while we were still sinners, while we were in, enemies with Him, His Son came, and He paid the penalty for our sin. He died so that we might have life. It says that 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Nathan, are you back there? So Nathan's been interning with us at, uh, at Blackwood all summer and, and with Pittman Photography. And I've been having him do the books. And every month, what do you do, Nathan? You reconcile the bank account. So we have on, on the computer what I think is in the bank account, right? And then the bank sends us a statement saying, this is what's in your bank account. And we have to take those two things and we have to compare them to one another and we have to reconcile them. So there's a problem. We have a holy, righteous God and we cannot be in His presence. We cannot live with Him in eternity because we are sinners, because we have rebelled against Him and because He is just. And then we have us, we are sinners. That's it, we're sinners. And so there's a problem. And it says that Christ has come and He has reconciled us to God. God views us as sinners and that there's a debt to be paid. But Christ came, He was a mediator, and instead of just coming between and talking to the two of us to resolve the conflict, no, instead He paid the penalty for our sins. The Son of God, the Creator. In John chapter 1, it says that Christ was the Creator, that He created all things. All things were created through Him and in Him and by Him. He came to earth and He became a man. And He went to the cross. And Scripture says that on the cross, the rest of Isaiah 53, that the Lord laid on Him the iniquities of us all. The sins of the world were laid upon the eternal God. And the punishment we deserved, the death that we deserved for our sins, Christ paid the debt. There we go. Christ paid it in full. And it says, so it says now that we can be reconciled to God so that when God looks at us, He no longer sees our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness and He says, that's all I need. We are in fellowship. You can be with me for all eternity. What a magnificent thing. Acts 16.30 says this. It says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is when we receive something that we don't deserve. And that's what salvation is. We don't deserve salvation. We have done nothing to earn salvation. We have nothing in and of ourselves that make it so that God says, you should get salvation. Because we are sinful, wretched people. But by grace, we have been saved through faith. It says, it is not of works, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God so that no one may boast. There's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. You can't outweigh your good with your bad. That's not the way it works. If a man murders someone, the jury doesn't say, well, when he was in high school, he helped out with the Boy Scouts. So, you know... No, that doesn't, that's not the way it works. He is responsible for his crimes. So we can't outweigh our good and our bad. There's nothing that we can do. Ephesians 2.8.9 says that it's by grace that we are saved through faith. 
It's placing our trust, our faith, and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've rebelled against You. But I realize that You sent Your Son. He came and He died on the cross. He took my sins upon Himself. And I am trusting in His death as my salvation, as my payment for my sins. And that's what we will say when we stand before Him in glory. And He says, Justin, why should I let you in? I won't say because I, because I did some good stuff, Lord. Because I read my Bible every day. Because I was baptized. No, none of that. None of that will matter. I will say because Your Son paid for my sin. And I am trusting in His death as the payment for my sin. I have a book here, The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. John Piper. It's a good book. And uh, I'd like to give it as a gift to someone. So the first person that would like to come take this book can have it. There you are. I like to see that eagerness, KT. So Kite now has that book. What did it cost you? Nada. Nada. Nothing. It was a gift from me to you. A gift. As Romans 6.23 says, it's the free gift of God. What did you have to do to get that, that book? That's right. You had to take it, right? I had it. I offered it. Anybody could have taken it. And KT came and he took it. Now, KT, would you look in the back of that book and tell me what's in there? A hundred dollar bill! Not really, it's five dollars. I'm not really that rich. Now, is that five dollar bill yours? You think so? (laughs) Is the book yours? Yeah. I gave it to you. So, the five dollar bill is with the book. So then it, as well, is yours. 1 John says, He who has the Son has life. KT has the book. KT has the $5. He who has the book has the money. Aren't you guys mad that you missed out? (laughs) Could have paid for your lunch at Taco Bell this afternoon. But 1 John says, He who has the Son has life. When we place our faith and our trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are given life. We pass from death to life. No longer is there condemnation for our sin. No longer do we have to pay for the sins that we have done because Christ has paid for them. And it says that we have eternal life. No longer eternal death. Eternal life. What a magnificent thing. He who has the Son has life. So Christ, God's first and foremost desire for us, His will for us, is this. That we repent of our sins, that we turn to Him, and that we trust in Christ. Because He is our Savior. But He needs to be our personal Savior. Because He's the one that paid the penalty for our sins. And Christ is offering that free gift. Take it. And you too can have eternal life. 
So my question this morning to you is this. Have you obeyed the will of God? The first step in the will of God for your life is this. That you accept Christ as your Savior. Have you done that? Because it's the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. I want to turn a little bit and talk about something for a few minutes. Because as we talk about the will of God and as we talk about salvation, it, it, it raises a difficult question. We see that if God desires all people to come to the knowledge of Him to be saved, that if He is patient, wishing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if we believe that God is all-powerful, that He controls all things, that He's completely sovereign that He does His will what He wants, then why, why aren't all men saved? Isaiah 46, 9-11 says this, He says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish My good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east or the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Wow. God's saying, I'm, I do whatever I want. My will, I will make it happen. So if God desires that all men be saved, why aren't all men saved? It's this age-old question of the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. And we're not going to go real deep into the topic of, of the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man because Matthew, in three weeks, will unveil all the mysteries for us. Right? We're going to spend a whole message on this topic. But I do want to, this morning, look at it as it pertains to Salvation. Because Psalms 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. We recognize that God is sovereign, that He is omnipotent, all-powerful, that He is omniscient, all-knowing, that nothing is outside of His control. He created this world, this universe... And so it is His. He controls all things. He does what He wants. And if He says He desires all men to be saved, why aren't they? Colossians 1 verse 17 says this. And referring to Christ, it says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. So we, we see that our God, Christ, the Son of God, is fully in control. Everything is under His power. 
So if God accomplishes his will, he is all-powerful, he does what he wants, again, the question arises, then why aren't all men saved? And the answer is this, that God has given us free will. He's given us the ability to make our own choices. We have the ability to accept Him. Romans 10, 12-13 says, There is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3:16, probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So we see we have this choice, and it's available to anyone. Everyone has the opportunity to believe, to accept. And yet some don't. And so we have this apparent contradiction, don't we? That God is all-powerful, He does His will, He accomplishes what He wants. And yet somehow God has made us, created us as beings with free will to make the decisions of our own. And we have this apparent contradiction. How can God be fully in control, doing as He pleases, and if He wishes that all men be saved, and yet they aren't, and yet we have the free will to do and make decisions of our own? How do these two work together? And it's what, again, I like to call an apparent contradiction. They appear to contradict one another. We see examples of these in Scripture. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul, describing his Christian life, says, He is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, that he is poor, yet making many rich. He has nothing, yet possesses everything. Now those things are contradictions. They don't really make sense, do they? How can you be sorrowful and yet joyful at the same time? If you're poor, how can you make other people rich? You, you don't have anything to give them. If you have nothing, you don't possess everything. You possess nothing. And yet if we look at what Paul's actually saying, he's saying he, he sorrows in circumstances, yes, but he finds his joy in the Lord. That though... Though the times may be difficult at this moment, he knows that he can find his joy and his peace in Christ. That though they have, may have no earthly possessions to give someone to make them rich, they have spiritual truth to give to man, to make them spiritually rich. They were coming to man with the gospel, with life. Riches beyond anything this world could imagine. And that just because he owns no property or no money, there is a sense in which everything belongs to him because he belongs to Christ and Christ is Lord over everything. So the statements in and of themselves seem to be contradicting, but there's a truth behind them. 2 Corinthians 12.10 is a famous uh, uh, verse as well that we hear very often. Paul says, When I am weak, then I am strong. Now that doesn't make sense, because when you're weak, you're weak, not strong. And when you're strong, you're strong. Take KT and I as an example. I am strong, 
and KT is weak. You know, you guys see that. It's obvious, right? So it's an apparent contradiction. But in verse 9, Paul says this, right before that, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul is saying he is most aware of God's power in his life when he realizes that in and of himself he is completely helpless. There is nothing that he can do and that it's God's power working through him. So we have this apparent contradiction. And we see these contradictions in life don't we? Sorry. I skipped ahead a little bit. Let's go back. So we have this apparent contradiction. And so a lot of people, what they do is, is they, they have the, the sovereignty of God. God's fully in control. He does what He wants. Everything that happens, happens because of Him and through Him. And we have this concept of the, that we have free will to make decisions of our own. And so how do we reconcile these two? A lot of people will take them and, and try to explain them together or merge them together and in doing so, remove one or the other. And so that it comes to we aren't free to make our own decisions. We don't actually have free will. Or God isn't completely sovereign. He doesn't control everything. Things are out of His control. But neither of these things are true. And J.I. Packer says this, it says the root cause is the same issue in most cases of error in the church. The intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and let God be wiser than men, and a consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. Now that's a lot of fancy words for basically what Packers are saying is God's ways are not man's ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There are going to be things in life that don't make sense to us. Because our God is infinite and we are finite. We are the created being. He is the creator. So by definition, there are things about God that aren't going to make sense to His finite beings. We aren't going to be able to fit God into our little box of what we understand as imperfect, stupid, finite beings. And the problem, Packer says, is that when one of those infinite truths doesn't fit within our box, what we try to do is we try to try to cram it in there. We try to bring it into what we understand in our realm of human logic, what makes sense to us. And so we take this infinite idea, this infinite concept, and we bring it and we try to crush it down into our little finite box, and it doesn't work. And we can't do that. And like I was saying, even within our finite world, we recognize there's levels of understanding, don't we? 
Della is learning so much right now, and it's just one of my favorite things to watch her. She's just crawling all over the place, picking up everything, poking everything, looking at everything, banging everything on the floor. She's learning. She's learning what things are. She's trying things. She loves the remotes. She likes to push the buttons. I have to take the battery out of the remote like every day so she can play with it so she doesn't like turn things on and off. But she's learning. But she doesn't understand what most of this stuff is or what it does or how it works. She just sees it and she plays with it and she's learning what, what happens, how to use her motor skills that when she pushes the little orange button on her little guitar, it starts to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. See, she learns these, these actions and responses. And yet she doesn't understand the full concept, as I do with the remote, that there's batteries in it that power it, and that when you push the button, it sends this signal from the remote to the television with a code that the TV interprets to say, bump the volume up once. She doesn't understand that. She doesn't even know what it does. It's just a black thing with fun buttons to push. Some of us, when we open the hood of our car and we look at the engine, you know, it's baffling to us. We realize that it makes the car work, but we haven't the foggiest clue how. There's things moving. There's something called a piston in there, and something's catching on fire inside the metal box, and it makes my car go. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I'm sure Scott Warren understands more so than most of us the idea of the combustion engine and how it works. But for some of us, you know, there's so much in there. It's beyond our understanding of how it works. And yet someone understands how it works. When I look at this right here, I'm amazed that this tiny little computer that there's software and hardware and they, they, they come together and they make this just super powerful little mini computer, basically. It's incredible. And I work with software and I understand the concept behind it, but I could not, for the life of you, explain to you how this thing works. It's incredible. And so we understand, even within our own world, there's levels of understanding. There are things that I know are true. I know that this works. It doesn't make sense to me that it does, but I understand that it does. But there are men much smarter than me that know how it works and even made it. And so we must recognize as finite beings that within our finite world, there are going to be things that are beyond our understanding because our God is infinite. And so things to us that at this moment seem as though they're an apparent contradiction, they're not because they're outside our realm of understanding. Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths. And he said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. So I think something we should take away this morning is that we should not look at the sovereignty of God and the free will of man as enemies, as I think sometimes I often do, or even as uncomfortable neighbors, but rather as friends. The miraculous truth that is part of God's perfect creation, that in some perfect way we can trust and know that our God is infinite and omniscient and omnipotent and He's in control no matter what, and yet at the same time we have free will. I can make decisions. The decisions I have impact my life. And I'm responsible for those decisions. 
Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's just an incredible mystery. And so, if you were expecting me to explain it in a way that you would be wonderfully understanding this morning, I'm sorry. I can't do that. Because it is beyond my understanding. But I want to end this topic with a quote from Wayne Grudem, because he has stated it, I think, one of my favorite ways I've ever heard it. So, listen, listen to this. He says, God's provincial direction as an unseen, behind-the-scenes primary cause should not lead us to deny the reality of our choices and actions. So, in, so he's saying, God, who's out there, he's in control, he's, he's providentially directing behind-the-scenes He is the primary cause of everything. This should not lead us to deny the reality that we have choices and actions of our own. It says again and again in Scripture, he affirms that we really do cause events to happen. We are significant and we are responsible. We do have choices and these are real choices that bring about real results. Just as a rock is really hard because God has made it with the property of hardness, And just because water is really wet, because God has made it with the property of wetness, and just as plants are really alive, because God has made them with the property of life, so our choices do have significant effects, because God has made us in such a wonderful way that He has endowed us with the property of willing choice. Sorry, I think I skipped a little bit there. It says, so our choices are real choices, and do have significant effects because God made us in such a wonderful way that He has endowed us with the property of willing choice. It's a mystery. I mean, I don't know why water is wet, but God made it wet. It's a mystery to me, and it's an amazing part of His creation. And God has created us in such a way that we have the ability to make choices and decisions of our own. And it's just incredible. And so this morning I want to, to, to close with this question. We're looking at the will of God for our lives. And we started at the beginning, and I believe the will of God for us is our salvation, first and foremost. Before anything else can happen in our lives for God to work, to mold us and shape us, we have to come to Him. We have to be saved. We have to receive the free gift of salvation. He wants us to repent and turn to Him. So have you made that choice? Have you made that choice? God is presenting to you the free gift of salvation. Have you accepted it? 1 John 5.13 says that you may know that you have eternal life. There is not a question. You can, this morning, know that you have eternal life. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, I I write these things. What things is he talking about? Well, that's verse 12, and it's the verse we looked at this morning already. He says, He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He says, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. If this morning you do not know that you have eternal life, please, please talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to some other person that 
is your friend that you believe is a Christian and, and a spiritual person. And we can take the Word of God and we can show you from the Word of God that you can know that you have eternal life. That you can know that you have been forgiven from your sins, that Christ has paid the penalty for your death, and you cannot not have to fear death and condemnation, knowing that one day that you can stand in God's presence and God's glory, fully forgiven because of the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled this morning by Your love. We are humbled by the gift of Your salvation. We know that we are, we are sinful men and women and that we have, we have rejected You, Father. All throughout history, man has rejected You, has turned from You. And yet You sought us, You loved us, You showed us how much You loved us and that while we were still sinning, turning our backs against You, You came and You paid the penalty for our sins. You died so that we might have life. And we praise You for that this morning. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would be at work in us and through us this morning. Those that have accepted this gift of life, Lord, that we would be spurred on uh, by the grace and the mercy that we've received and that we'd want to share this amazing truth with our brothers and sisters and neighbors. Father, and I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, that Your Holy Spirit would convict their heart now and show them that the wonderful gift of salvation is being handed down from from you to them and they just need to receive it. We love you and we pray this in your just magnificent name, Lord. Amen.